0: Okay, here's what I do at The Ortho Show, love it so much, telling the amazing stories of remarkable orthopedic surgeons from around the world. We have Rick Angelo on, who's an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist in private practice. Uh, out in Seattle, Washington, retired a few years ago, literally one of the iconic leaders in professional education of our generation, Uh, past president of the Arthroscopy Association of North America, uh, a a major member of the Orthopedic Learning Center, and his passion for orthopedic education started with, with Dr. Hawkins, as well as for Dr. Andrews his mentors, and then he is a mentor to so many others. What a great story he shares. And then we talk about what he's doing now and the great passion that he has for Caliber AI, which uh, sounds like is going to be revolutionary innovation in the orthopedic space. It's a great listen. You're going to appreciate it. Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro.
1: From medical media, this is The Ortho Show.
0: Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of The Ortho Show podcast where everyone knows we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic space. And we have a classic orthopedic surgeon who's just been around for a long time and has just done so many amazing things. Rick Angelo is an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist. He is uh, currently re- retired from clinical practice, but just has such a rich history in orthopedics. He's, uh lives still outside of Seattle, and really one of the great leaders in sports medicine, physician education. And what a pleasure it is to have you on the show, Rick.
1: Well, Thanks, Scott. It's a delight to be here.
0: No, we're thrilled to have you. And I know that uh, there'll be some great shared stories in here. I'm sure we know so many of the same people. But at the beginning of the show, we always like to start in the same place, which is, you know, where were you brought up? How come orthopedics? And, you know, sort of what was the direct what was the drive in the direction that got you to be an orthopedic surgeon?
1: Well, I grew up in Southern Washington, Vancouver, Washington, and always enjoyed sciences and love spending time with people. And medicine seemed to be the easiest marriage of of those two interests. And as I was going through training, uh, I've always loved and enjoyed sports and couldn't see myself in the office five days a week. And surgery was a passion. So the marriage of surgery and sports just led to orthopedics and eventually sports medicine.
0: And is, are there other doctors in the family? Are you the first doc? Tell us about that.
1: Uh, just a, a brother-in-law who is a PM&R specialist, and that's the uh, extent of my uh, heritage with medicine.
0: I love it. So you are you spent uh, most of your life in Washington. You spent a couple of years to get outside of there to do a little bit of orthopedic training along the way. Uh, but uh, University of Washington for, for college, I mean, it's interesting. I look at your your, your cv and your pedigree and we're literally 10 years apart like literally everything that you did was 10 years ahead of me but in a very classic similar format also we'll talk a little bit about your choice for private practice but and then uh, university of washington for medical school as well and and then off to utah for your orthopedic residency we always love shout outs here on the ortho show so give us a little bit of history about your residency and some of the important people that helped to educate you
1: Well, I I think my residency was great, Uh, great mentors, Sherm Coleman uh, and Hal Dunn were uh, outstanding mentors. I'm very, very fortunate to have the ability to do two fellowships, one with Rich Hawkins in Canada and uh, Rich is a jewel, uh, probably one of the best in terms of physical examination that I've ever seen. Then went on to do a fellowship with Jimmy Andrews and Jimmy probably hands down is the best in in connecting with patients. He could engage patients from professional athletes to the lady next door, and each one of them would walk over coals for him. So uh, great mentorship from those two as well.
0: I love it. So I just want to sort of back up. We're going to have to talk your age here a little bit. Unfortunately, I, I apologize, Rick. But I mean, at the time, you know, Hawkins is up in Canada, right? There is no Stedman Hawkins at this point. And then, and then Jimmy Andrews is down with Jack Houston at the Houston Orthopedic Clinic. He hasn't started up anything. So I just find it fascinating, the history of orthopedics, when when you dive deep into this, how how the story is different than what you think earlier on in career, for sure.
1: Yeah, uh, it was a. You're absolutely right, Scott. Uh, it was a treat to spend time in London, Ontario, with uh, Rich and and see his perspective. And actually, I was the last fellowship group with Jimmy Andrews at the Houston Clinic before uh, he went to Birmingham, and uh, I went west to Seattle. So. Uh, So let's talk about
0: that, because I find it interesting, because, I mean, you've trained with some of these absolutely amazing docs, mentors, I'm sure, you've stayed, you know, have relationships with them throughout your entire lifetime. I would have pegged you for an academic career, right? I mean, you're working with some of the greats within sports medicine, although it's very early in the sports medicine world. There may not be as many jobs out there as there are now, for sure. But what drove you to, to private practice? I find that interesting.
1: Well, I did waffle a little bit in trying to make that decision, but ultimately uh, felt that the place and the opportunity in Seattle was the best for me. And and actually, that sort of leads into about two or three years into practice. I felt like I was getting just a little bit disconnected from the academic side of things. So I uh, scanned around and uh, found Steve Snyder, didn't know me from Adam. I said, Steve, can I come down? I went down for a week. And he has been a lifelong mentor for me. Uh, he uh, introduced me to the mytech folks for the G1 anchor and said, show this young surgeon in Seattle how to use that thing.
0: So. I, I I love that. I mean, you know Steve Snyder is still one of the people we're, we're having Steve on in about three weeks. You know, still, I still call him Dr. Snyder. I can't, can't get over it. You know, there's a few people I trained with Frank Joe. was always Dr. Joe, But uh, what an amazing, again, arthroscopist to sort of help develop some of the great leaders in arthroscopy. And and I know that the SCOE, the SCOE fellows are always so pr- proud of their heritage, for sure.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, Steve introduced me to Jim Ash. And I remember probably about two or three years after I started using the Little suit your anchors. Uh, Jim Esch called up and said, "Hey, would you like to give a presentation at the uh, uh, San Diego Shoulder Meeting?" And I thought I died and went to heaven. I thought if I don't do ever, <laughs> I do nothing more in orthopedics besides <laughs> participate at this uh, San Diego Shoulder Meeting as a speaker. I'll have, uh, I'll have done everything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it so I, I, we always go deep
0: on the CV and I'm going to pull one item up in particular because it's passion for me because I was just there at the development of the mytech anchor as well but in 1993 you have it on your CV you presented and it may have been at San Diego shoulder I'm not sure specifically an arthroscopic bank cart using this new mytech anchor and you know J.R Richmond was one of my mentors I trained at the Tufts program were you were you part of the mytech board when this was being developed or just an early user
1: just an early user. Yeah, we, uh, we had spent time looking at it and trying to uh, clarify where it was appropriate, where it probably wasn't appropriate, but just a, an early user and an adopter, but having nothing to do with design. And they, you know, we all just take for granted suture anchors these days, right? But prior to that, it was open
0: surgery. You were drilling tunnels, you know, passing suture in this deep, dark hole. And the concept of a suture anchor, even metal at the time, was just so amazingly unique and different.
1: Right, right. Uh, really uh, very, very special. I remember thinking like it was yesterday, when we first started doing arthroscopic rotator cuff repairs, I thought there is just absolutely no way that I think I can match arthroscopically what I'm doing open. And then as we all do, we keep looking, we keep investigating, we keep looking at a particular patient. And I remember Uh, There was one particular patient where things just started to fall together, and it was a small tear, but I thought, gosh, I could not have done better with that if I had done it open, and it was one of those uh, real uh, shifts and changes for me, And, and so much, Scott, of what we do is based on belief. If you're not sure it's going to work and whatnot, you tend to be a bit hesitant and whatnot. But once you are convinced and you believe that the application is there and has to be properly used, it makes all the difference in the world. And then you're off in a different direction.
0: And then there's medical device design, right? Because now you got to have the instruments, you got to be able to see and work and do. We have Brian Cole on, and we were, uh, Brian and I are contemporaries on age. And we were talking about the short tack where, you know, we Mm -hmm. were using that for slap repairs. And of course we had all kinds of problems with the synovitis and whatnot, but then, you know, as, as there's opportunity, then, you know, new things come. And, and I think that, uh, we all take it for granted, all the kids that are getting educated now, it's arthroscopic, it's arthroscopic, that's sort of what you do. But the idea of transitioning from an open surgery where you didn't have anyone to teach you really how to do that arthroscopic intervention and then go from there was a big deal at the time to, to develop the techniques.
1: Very much so. I, I think that uh, that's where uh, mentorship is comes in so much. I, I had the opportunity not only to get to know Steve Snyder and Steve uh uh, Burkhart, but Steve Burkhart probably taught me more about arthroscopic surgery in the shoulder than anybody, and so willing to share information, insights, wisdom, uh, and without those people in my career, certainly would have taken a different trajectory.
0: Did you travel to, to go and watch other arthroscopists in their operating room, or was it more in the labs and education, that sort of way?
1: Uh, both. I, I visited uh, Steve Snyder, Steve Burkhardt, Jim Esch, uh, spent lots of time in the lab. And uh, and so I think you really need a mix of both. No,
0: I think it takes great humility to be able to identify, you know, people that do something better than you and try to learn from them. And then, of course, be able to take that home and then pass that on uh, to the next generation as well. So talking about passing that on, you know, one of your great passions... Uh, is is professional education and very early on in your in your career, you decided that was a path. and and for example, if I did my research okay, Anna, the Orthroscopy Association of, of North America started up in 1981, about five years or so prior to you, you know starting in private practice. So I think you identified with Anna quite early and tell us about that. Why was that and your your CV is just laden with amazing work that you've done with that institution organization.
1: Well, I suppose a little bit of it got started with Steve Snyder, who connected me with some people. And uh, I, as I mentioned before, I was feeling just a little bit disconnected after a couple, two or three years, because most of my training was back east and got involved with Anna and started on uh, committees and progressed. And then one of the great, uh, great benefits was the opportunity to be education chairman, because I really got a chance to see You know, how we educate the next generation, you know, and that'll lead into some things we'll talk about a little bit later, but uh, great experiences. And really, uh, we call Anna a meritocracy, and I think it varies very much so. Uh, You know, if you're willing to roll up your sleeves, put in the time, put in the effort and and contribute, uh, you really have a lot to to gain from uh, participation in Anna.
0: And I I think we can all agree every time I go to one of these conferences that ANO, OLC or AOSSM, you always take home as much as you bring, right? You're around tremendous people doing really unique techniques and you get to take advantage of that learning experience as well.
1: Scott, you are absolutely right. I used to go back to the learning center two, three, four times sometimes a year uh, and the exact reason is just what you said, I, bumping elbows with other faculty, I always felt, though I tried the best I could to be a good educator, a good educator and teacher. I always felt like I came away with more pearls, insights and whatnot than I uh, certainly arrived with.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's no question that evidence-based medicine is really important, but I think experience-based medicine is tremendous as well, right? The mentors and the people and the decades of experience that they've accumulated, you know, you want to learn from them and get that information passed on. How about some advice? You know, we have a lot of young listeners, medical students from around the world and residents, you know, is it is it ever too early to get involved in society such as Anna? Tell Tell us about your thoughts about that.
1: You know, I don't think so. Uh, Anna has programs for uh, membership at uh, at a resident level. And I know the sports medicine has similar programs, but uh, the earlier you can get involved, what happens, Scott, as you know, to all of us is somewhere, somehow we cross paths in our career with somewhere between uh three and five or six mentors that had not been for them it really changed the trajectory and the sooner you get an opportunity to start meeting people and whatnot those stars are going to align and there are going to be people that are going to make a huge difference in your career
0: well i would call that some absolutely frotastic advice i love that now again you know you're in private practice you're part of anna which is wonderful you're keeping your relationships Uh, your CV is very deep on research and literature. And that's also, uh, you know, something that must have been very important to you in your career. And that's not easy in private practice. In academics, you have fellows, residents, medical students, everybody wants to help. But in private practice to do it, it's not so easy. So tell us about your experience with that.
1: Well, uh, I must admit, uh, you know, some of the things we'll talk about in, in a few minutes, really probably took a life of their own on and it was a second job and it's one of those things where had you known that that's what it was going to be uh, requiring, you might not have taken that step. But once you get started on a path and you have a vision, it's very, very hard to, to turn back. And so uh, I my wife is wonderful, but I would not tell you if I have always had the perfect balance between uh, career practice, family and whatnot. But you know, I liken it to a wheel with weights to balance the wheel, except for in our orthopedic lives, the weights aren't fixed. So they're constantly shifting, so you're constantly rebalancing. And so uh, for me, it's trying to just keep aware of, when I have to rebalance and, and make adjustments in the in the opportunities and practice and family and whatnot.
0: Yeah, I mean the work-life balance is difficult, especially um as you as you gain wisdom and years of experience you're sought after more and people want to work with you. And I think that's a perfect segue uh, to talk a little bit right now about what you're currently doing. And you've retired from clinical practice. You're not operating and seeing patients, but you're the chief medical officer of caliber AI, which I think, um, you know, I am privy to some of the information just to be perfectly transparent to our listeners. I am on well, the advisory board, but I think it's one of the most amazing Uh, sort of technology um, uh, aspects that we're seeing in orthopedics, and it's about time, right? I mean, there's so much technology in our lives, our smartphones, our cars, and all the things that we do, and it just seems like our wired scopes to our flat TVs and the things that we're doing in the operating room hasn't really changed much in 15 years. So tell us a little bit about Caliber AI, why you're excited about it, and what your role is as chief medical officer.
1: Well, so with Caliber, actually, the way I got involved is probably five years ago. Brian Cole, uh, who you mentioned, called me. I think he was uh, president at that time. And he said, hey, this company's come across our radar we don't have time to vet it. Can you talk to them and see if they might be able to contribute to Anna's educational efforts? And I said, sure, I'll be happy to. So to make a long story short, it kind of started with curiosity and moved to hobby then consulting, then employment, and then chief medical officer. uh, And partly because it was so exciting. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that come along that make incremental changes in our life as orthopedic surgeons. But I really think uh, AI has the potential to make a quantum leap. And I think it's going to touch every aspect of the way we uh, perform surgery. So uh, very, very exciting, tons of potential. The opposite of our lives, uh, you know, ours are very, very structured, medical school, residency, whatnot, and working uh, with a startup was just an eye opener. It wasn't how are things going uh, year to year, it was how are things going day to day or hour to hour. But it has been a uh, great fun, uh, fantastic learning experience for me and uh, great people to work with
0: yeah, I mean, I think of artificial intelligence. There's been some really amazing things that have just recently happened, like ChatGbt. I don't know if you popped on and used that, but I just needed to write a letter of recommendation for a contractor uh, it for and I needed it in both English and French. I spent about three minutes putting together a couple of strings of ideas. Next thing you know, this thing pops out in perfect French, perfect English, and I'm like setting this thing off on an email that would have taken me a week to do. And, and I think that artificial intelligence, we, we take for granted the things that we do in our brains and we become masters. What if we could take Rick Angelo's brain, Brian Cole's brain, Donnie Buford's brain, and Bill Levine's brain and take their 20 years of experience, download it into this computer, and then have it come back and tell us some really cool stuff?
1: yeah absolutely i mean i i think just some of the things that it's going to touch on uh improve precision i mean already we have digital tools for digital measurement both linear and curvilinear uh you can measure areas whatnot you can accurately assess the size of cartilage lesions uh and whatnot uh, guidance systems how cool is it going to be scott when we have trainees and you just hit an on and off toggle button and it projects an overlay of the glenoid and the preferred anchor sites. You toggle it off, you don't have to use those, uh, but these based on best practices of experienced and expert surgeons, uh, these templates are created and it begins to democratize surgery and not just here in the US. I mean, there are many, you've had, We've all had guests visit from other countries that maybe say, gosh, you know, I watched you do it uh, several times and whatnot. I'm just not quite comfortable enough to go back home and do it. But with somebody like AI looking over their shoulder and some guidance systems, uh, I really think it's going to expand the marketplace for for some of the skills. Decision-making, quite easy to get a real-time, on-track, off-track measurement, because you can get those measurements uh, and easily done in a very, very short period of time, so you're not relying on an imaging study that might have been a month or two old. Yeah, there's
0: there's just, the applications just keep on rolling and thinking the more you talk about it, but, you know, the interesting thing about arthroscopy, unlike You know, standard surgery, manual dexterity, you know, you're looking at where your open hole is, where you're operating and you're moving instruments around. You're taking this three-dimensional space, putting it up onto a two-dimensional screen. And some people are really good at making that transition, but other people aren't. So now if you can put up these geographic markers, here's your, this is where the subscap is. This is where the biceps tendon is. You know, you. this is where the axillary nerve is. Don't go near that guy. You know, things like that, I think can really elevate the game of most surgeons to really be better at what they do.
1: Yeah, no question. You know, we spent a decade uh, working on proficiency-based progression training for surgical skills, and there's no question it's a superior way to train than we do right now, but the sweat equity required in having surgeons like yourself manually score the videos according to the metrics was uh, not scalable. We, In one component, we had 2,200 hours of surgeon time. AI that can be programmed to score operative performance with the metrics will dramatically change the ability to start moving these better training methods into practicality.
0: And and, there's so many different aspects, like it can watch like it will be able to watch the surgery, right? And be able to know what you're doing. Okay, you just did, you know, the acromioplasty and now you're going to do the rotator cuff repair. And when you walk out of the room, you got an op note that's sitting there waiting for you, right? Because it watched the whole thing. I mean, again, just the things that we take for granted every day that we do repetitively that just help us to be better what we do.
1: Absolutely. So it's going to say at a point in time, it's going to send an alert and it's going to say, Dr. Sigmund, on average for this particular procedure is 18 minutes from dressing on. A message goes to pre-op to say the next patient needs to be ready. One goes to post-op to says, expect a patient within the next 15 minutes. Uh, there is really no end to how it has the potential to impact uh, the intra-op space, not just the uh, pre or post-op.
0: And I think intra-op decision-making for a lot of surgeons can be difficult. I think the reason that, why is it that one surgeon you know takes 45 minutes to do a surgery and another takes three hours? And so to be able to have some guidance, right, I you know, one, one of my favorite lines is, do you want to get into the cab in New York City with a guy that's got a triple A map, or do you wanna get into the Uber that's got you know GPS that's mm-hmm. gonna make sure you get where you need to go? And that's the technology that we use every day outside the operating room. Why wouldn't we want that technology to make us better in the operating room?
1: Right, I mean, it will take, no question, not gonna be easy. It will take massive amounts of data, but it's not inconceivable that, Scott, you might query uh, the system mid case, and say, am I better with a glenoid bone graft or from what I've demonstrated and shown you diagnostically, is an arthroscopic uh, primary repair with a remplissage uh, a reasonable option? And it's gonna go through gazillion bits of of data and at some point be able to say statistically you probably better off doing this or that or whatever.
0: And then how about making sure you put that anchor in the right place, right? And we'll be able to make recommendations based on the tear pattern. For example, rotator cuffs, everyone's unique and different. That's why most of us love, you know, rotator cuff surgery and be able to have the idea of to not have to worry about putting it under too much tension, but have that experience to help you make intraoperative decisions. Again, I think is is truly fascinating.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is, is the surgeon is going to be able to go back over data generated from his cases, and in his last 20 cases, he spent what he felt was, based on the data, inordinate amounts of time exposing the glenoid, and so he may say, okay, I'm going to go visit Scott Sigmund and see what his tips and tricks are, because that component of my surgery is eating up too much time. And I want to refine that, uh, that aspect. So.
0: Love that. A great, great commentary as well. And let's not forget, I mean, you know, we all know that sports medicine arthroscopists are the coolest doctors on the planet, but there, there, there are some other people out there doing some great work, too, right? So I think this artificial intelligence is, clearly has the ability to move into thoroscopy or general surgery, wherever it is that you may be in a space where you're looking at a two-dimensional object and trying to I, I envision a three-dimensional world.
1: Uh, Scott, you're absolutely right. It, it, essentially, any discipline that's image based, this application can be used. We were approached uh, by some cardiologists about trying to size valves, and it's not inconceivable that using ultrasound imaging. You can float in a certain size instrument and get the right cut and get a sense for much much more accurate uh, determination of what valve size you need. So anything that's image based is really amenable to to the technology. I love it. And and so let's for the for our listeners. I mean, is this pie in the sky? I mean, are
0: we going to be driving this electronic vehicle down the road pretty soon, or or are we years away?
1: Uh, no, I think there are certain applications that are present right now. I mean, digital uh, measurement is is essentially here. We have some refinements to make. Uh, digital landmarking uh, is, is really very, very close. Uh, moving into actual templating will take some more work. The really exciting change is going to be Uh, when we can incorporate MRI and CT data and sync that with the data that we're seeing intraoperatively. And the big issue there is registration because you've got to know that what the CT and MRI is seeing is exactly what you're seeing, just like if you were doing a robotic uh, partial knee replacement or something. And we have some ideas on how we may... Uh, be able to solve that you know i think scott we there's a little bit of a tendency to say is the surgeon better or is ai better but the truth is we want to take all the capabilities of wisdom experience and everything from a surgeon and we want to marry that to all the data processing capabilities of ai and see what the best of both of them working together can be and And so that's where I think really the if we can get the registration there, then that's going to make a big, big difference in terms of that pre-op imaging data.
0: Uh, Incredibly well said. I mean, you know, we 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 both have done this for for quite some time, and you know, as a general rule, what we see is you know incremental innovation, a widget change here, a widget change there. But I truly get the sense that this could be revolutionary change uh, in what we're seeing for uh, for arthroscopy and, and multiple specialties across medicine,
1: for sure. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Scott.
0: Well, look, you know, you know, Rick, I really, you know, greatly appreciate. It. It's always wonderful to have someone with your wisdom and experience, and we want to thank you uh, for your your decades of experience in orthopedics, your passion for professional education, uh, the the mentors that you've worked with, but the mentor that you have been uh, to so many as well. What a privilege to to have you on and thank you also for sharing your amazing story here with Caliber AI as well.
1: Well, Scott, it's been a real pleasure for me and uh, thank you for the invite. Uh, Really, really enjoyed the conversation.
0: This is what we do on The Ortho Show. We bring remarkable orthopedic individuals from around the world, tell their amazing stories. It's been a privilege to to have you on. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of The Ortho Show. Till next time.